1949, the Soviet Union publicly announced that they had successfully detonated an atomic bomb. The news was shocking to many Americans. Uh, It was widely believed that the Russians didn't have the capabilities and know-how to build and detonate an atom bomb. But shortly after the announcement, the White House confirmed it. The communists had the bomb. But how the hell did they get it? I'm Taylor. I'm Kat, and welcome to Square Mile of Murder. Uh, This is our last regular episode of 2021. Which is wild. Yeah. Um, So yeah, no, I will repeat, I've said it before, no prophecies about 2022. Okay. None. We're this it's gonna exist. We're gonna be there. <laughs> Nobody is making any claims to it. That's fair. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh we're continuing on with our spy theme and rounding out the month and the year with the story of the Atom Spies, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, the first and only American civilians to be executed for espionage during peacetime. So, we've already spoiled the ending. (laughs) So let's go back to the beginning and see how we ended up there. Uh, Julius Rosenberg was born on May 12th, 1918 in New York City. His family were Jewish immigrants from the Russian Empire, aka Imperial Russia. I had to look up, it's like, now I think I know what the Russian Empire means, but I need to check. (laughs) Uh, They lived in the Lower East Side. Uh, Julius became a leader in the Young Communist League USA while he was a student at City College of New York in the 1930s, which is where he met Ethel Greenglass. Nice name. Isn't that a good good last name? I love it. Uh, Ethel was born on September 28, 1915, to a Jewish family in New York and also grew up on the Lower East Side. Her father was born in Russia and her mother was born in Austria. She had a brother, David, and a half-brother, Bernard. Uh, Ethel became involved in labour disputes and then joined the Young Communist League, where she she and Julius met in 1936. By 1939, Julius graduated with a degree in electrical engineering, and the couple got married. They went on to have two sons, Michael and Robert. Julius joined the Army Signal Corps Engineering Laboratories at Fort Monmouth, in New Jersey in 1940 and worked as an engineer inspector there until 1945. Ethel and Julius, as well as Ethel's brother David Greenglass and his wife Ruth, were all dedicated communists, if if you couldn't tell that by the whole youth communist league. I mean, if you're going to be a communist, it's best to be a dedicated, dedicated. one. You don't want someone half-assing things. That's true. Uh... And this was not uncommon at the time, especially for Jewish Americans. You know, during the 1930s, living in poverty during the Great Depression and watching the rise of fascism overseas, communism seemed like a pretty good answer. Yeah. And also, as we've already discussed this month in the, oh, what was his name? Raoul Wallenberg? Yeah, that was a Patreon. Oh, well, so if you're not on Patreon... (laughs) Um, we discussed the story of Raoul Wallenberg, who was a Belgian? Swedish. 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 You wrote it. So he was, um, like a Swedish business magnate or from a a prominent... powerful family, right? Yeah, still one of the most prominent families in Europe. And during the Second World War, he sort of led, uh quote-unquote neutral countries in their resistance efforts to stop and their sort of efforts to stop the holocaust and save as many jewish people as possible by providing um diplomatic passports and travel papers for hungarian jewish people yeah and so in that episode we spoke a little bit about how um uh the russians were sort of like supportive of his efforts and so he had some dealings with um the soviet union and 
I don't think a lot of people in America know this, but the Soviet Union was one of the big three allied powers in World War II, along with Great Britain and the United States. Want to know something else? A lot of British people don't know that either. <laughs> yeah. A lot, of British, a lot of British people think we fought the Russians or yeah. the Soviets. Yeah. So, um, um, which, like, I kind of knew in so much as I knew who the Axis powers were. But, yeah. like, I think you kind of you forget to fill in the other gaps, you know? And especially with all the animosity between the U.S. and the Soviet Union after the war. Well, when you look at sort of after 45, you've got the Cold War, the Korean War, yeah. the Vietnam War. Yep. You've got the war in Afghanistan in the 80s. Yep. The Soviets had a hand in all of those. Um, sorry, Holly's. You're... I know you're recording. Yeah. I'm being held fucking hostage by a squad. Oh my god. Um. How how I is she being held hostage? <laughs> she can't get out of the car at the park. Um. Tell her to. Has she got like a like a, you know, like a a, a, a beeping noise or something? That she can make, like, beep the horn. Beep the horn. No? Go out the other side of the car. Goodbye. Bye. My wife, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, anyway. Yes. <laughs> so, you look at all those, like, all those, what's Korean, Vietnam, uh, Afghanistan, yeah. the, the Cold War in general. Yeah. All, all of those, Russia had a hand in on one side and America had a hand in on, on the, the other, other side. side. To varying degrees, and of course you've then got the Western and Eastern blocs as their allies. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so not uncommon for um, many Americans to be communists in the 30s and 40s. Um, and uh, that was especially true of sort of more liberal leaning folks just yep. look at the entirety of hollywood <laughs> yeah the blacklist yep the blacklist i'm sure maybe maybe we will touch on that a little bit in uh, some future episodes i was just thinking that we should do that because um in my previous life as a film journalist i did quite a bit on the blacklist when yeah. trumbo came out yes yeah that's what i was thinking so yeah, yeah. We we should do that in a in a, another episode. Yeah, because um, all that stuff is also really interesting. So yeah, uh, yeah. So um, so going back to the original point. Yeah, dedicated communists. Dedicated communists. La the tide, as we know, turned against communism quite quickly in the U.S. following the war, and the Red Scare came in strong, uh, and like. As much as the U.S. and the Soviets were allied during World War II, they did not share secrets. So there's, they're like frosty friends. Um, unfortunately for Ethel and Julius, they did not get the memo about how not cool communism now was, and they decided to stick with it. Um, and in 1945, when the U.S. Army found out about Julius's membership in the Communist Party, they fired him. Uh, but unfortunately for the U.S. government, they were too late. Julius Rosenberg began passing secrets to the Soviets in 1942. He was originally recruited to spy for the Interior Ministry of the Soviet Union, and the initials of that um, organization are the NKVD. That's one of the predecessors to the KGB yes. as well. Yeah, it is. Kind of, there's so I keep reading like, oh, so so was a predecessor to the KGB. This was a KG, KDB uh, predecessor, and I'm like, okay, it got reorganized a, a lot, lot in the fifties. Yeah. I think. I think, and I think also potentially a bunch of like different, like separate offices or organizations got smooshed into one. Yeah. Which makes sense. If you have that many initials that you need to say for like 17 different organizations, 
I'd I'd want to make them just a short yeah. three too, you know. And I mean, the the KGB has been like the one that made the lasting impact because it existed the longest. Yeah. So he was recruited to spy for the NKVD on Labor Day, nineteen forty-two. So that's like early September. He was initially recruited by spy master Semyon Semyonov. Um. That name sounds familiar, but I don't know why. Yeah, like I think he's he was like a a a big dude in terms of managing Soviet spies in the U.S. So I think mm. he, his name pops up in a bunch of these different stories. Interesting. Yeah. Um. Uh. So after he was recruited, Julius was subjected to a thorough vetting and recruitment process that included training in spycraft, which is nice. You know, send your folks out there with the proper training. Um, And after passing his probationary period, Julius became a valuable asset and was managed by Semyonov and then later Alexander Feklasov when uh, Semyonov drew suspicions from U.S. counterespionage and was sent back to Moscow. (laughs) Yeah. Get out and get out quick. Yeah. <laughs> uh, during the war, Julius provided thousands of classified reports to the Soviets and had managed to assemble a spy ring of engineers, scientists, and machinists, including former City College classmate Morton Sobel. But perhaps the most important member of this spy ring was his brother in law, David Greenglass. Greenglass was born in 1922 and went on to study mechanical engineering and designing, and worked in his father's shop. FBI files show that David was 12 years old when Ethel met Julius. At first he didn't like Julius, and didn't like that Julius and Ethel were trying to convert him to communism. But soon, Julius and David became close, and David joined the Young Communist League when he was 14. David never formally joined the Communist Party because he came to believe the Soviet Union was using communism as a tool for world domination instead of using it to solve the world's problems. It's not wrong. <laughs> the, they weren't getting they weren't really getting a shifty on with it though, were they? I mean, they had a they had their nice little like area that they, they managed. They had the union. Yeah. And then they had they had aspirations, you know, dream big and mm. all that. Uh, David's wife, wife Ruth, also became disillusioned by communism following the war, taking a similar view as her husband. They had two children, a son and a daughter. Uh, David Greenglass also enlisted in the U.S. Army in 1943 and was assigned to work in Los, An- Los Alamos, New Mexico, in 1944 and 1945. Los Alamos is where the U.S. conducted the Manhattan Project, the top-secret project to build an atomic bomb. I mean, it's not secret if it's an atomic bomb. Um, How do you detonate those? How do you test that thing secretly? But they did. So, I don't know. I mean, there's fucking nobody out in the desert in New Mexico, I guess. There was a great TV show about the project um, a few years back called Manhattan, and I really, I never finished that. I should watch it. But like, it kind of made it seem like there was just, they were just in the middle of fucking nowhere and nobody was paying attention to that. Really? Yeah. Like, it's not something I know much about. And I don't really have a grasp of like how vast the deserts are in America. Yeah. But yeah, these bombs developed and produced in Los Alamos would go on to be dropped on Hiroshima on August 6th, 1945, and Nagasaki on August 8th, 1945. So, you can imagine, they kept security pretty tight, but not quite tight enough. Uh, In September 1944, Feklasov approached Julius and suggested they recruit David into their spy ring. And though David had become disillusioned by communism, he agreed to help Julius smuggle secrets. He wrote in a letter to his wife, Ruth, My darling, I most certainly will be glad to be part of the community project that Julius and his friends have in mind. And by community project, he meant spying. And by friends, he meant the Soviets. I mean, in... The, the sense of a global community. Uh, yeah. 
his friends. I, all, all. It, it's a good. It, it's a good allegory. It is, and it is. You know, it takes a village and all that to to spy, <laughs> to steal nuclear secrets. But it's as long as they don't all live in the same. Village. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that would be suspicious. Mm. Um. So yeah, he started working for the friendly Soviets. Um, Ruth was also recruited by Julius and they actually used her apartment in New York as a safe house and also it's mentioned in some of the sources that they used it as a safe house for photography I don't know what that means Um, well part of I would think part of what they were sending to the Soviets would involve photographs Yeah. so it was maybe maybe a safe place to develop them yeah Something like that. Um, um, or stall them. Or... Yeah, or I was also thinking maybe like fake papers, like cre- taking photographs of mm. people. I don't know. But it, they yeah. did not elaborate, so we'll have to guess. <laughs> um, and In November of 1944, David began passing nuclear secrets to the Soviets via courier Harry Gold, who was American which I think becomes important later. Um, One of the bits of info he passed on was a sketch of an implosion-type nuclear weapon that was being developed in New Mexico. Uh, And he worked on some of the components of the Fat Man bombs that would ultimately be dropped in Nagasaki. He was offered the chance to work on nuclear tests at Bikini Atoll, but declined because he wanted to be with his wife. So he was dishonored. No, no, (laughs) no, no. Don't you go besmirching hell. Don't you go besmirching his name before we get to the bit where we besmirch his name. (laughs) He was honorably discharged. I think my issue is I see the dis and discharged, Uh. and I just yeah. So he was honorably discharged from the army on February twenty ninth, nineteen forty six, and returned to New York, where he ran a machine shop with Julius and his brother Bernard. Other secrets that the Rosenberg's spy ring supplied the Soviets included thousands of documents from the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, including a complete set of designs for the first operational U.S. fighter jet. Thousands of classified reports from Emerson Radio, including a complete proximity fuse that was designed to remotely detonate an explosive device when it got within a certain range of its target and secrets about processes for manufacturing weapons-grade uranium for a, from a second and separate source from David, uh, who's also working in the Manhattan Project. <laughs> so, you know, like... That's a lot. Yeah. That's like a lot of info that the United States probably wouldn't want just getting out. No. Yeah. Uh, and so when the Soviets staged their first nuclear test in 1949, U.S. officials were shocked and suspicious. Are the Americans ever not suspicious of anyone with a strange accent? I mean, no. Ask him for a friend. But, like, we don't talk about that. I mean, you even all cast the Brits as bad guys in Hollywood, so... That's because they're just so, like... They have so much gravitas, like a a, a a guy with a like proper, like London accent who also wears a dark suit and like a you know a, a felt hat or something. Like that's a good bad guy. Come on. <laughs> In January 1950, U.S. officials discovered that Klaus Fuchs, a theoretical physicist working on the Manhattan Project had passed key documents to the Soviets during the war. Boots identified his courier as American Harry Gold, whom you might remember as the courier for David Greenglass as well. Gold was arrested on May 23rd, 1950, and then the FBI came for David Greenglass on June 15th, 1950. After his arrest, Greenglass confessed to passing secrets through Gold, and in an effort to help himself... He told the FBI that Julius had also been spying for the Soviets and linked Julius to Soviet contact agent Anatoly Yakovlev. 
After Greenglass began cooperating, the FBI arrested Julius Rosenberg on July 15, 1950. The FBI was determined to make a case against Julius and decided that using Ethel to put pressure on him was the way to go. Breaks many people. Yes. And they used David and Ruth Greenglass to help. When he was initially interviewed, David told the FBI that he had passed atomic data to Julius on a New York street corner. During a second round of questioning, David changed his story and said he had given this information to Julius in the Rosenberg's living room. He also said that Julius asked Ethel to take and type up the notes. In her second interview, Ruth Greenglass expanded on this version of their story. She said, quote, Julius then took the info into the bedroom and read it, and when he came out, he called Ethel and told her she had to type this information immediately. Ethel then sat down at the typewriter, uh, which she placed on a bridge table in the living room, and proceeded to type the information that David had given to Julius. And after this, new, this quote, new information came to light, all the charges against Ruth Greenglass were dropped. Yep. So, on August 11th, Ethel... Ethel? No. <laughs> on August 11th, Ethel Rosenberg testified before a grand jury, but for every question they asked her, she invoked her Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and refused to answer. Which you have the right to. Yes. Same as you have the right to remain silent. Um, or, you know, just no comment. And I think a lot of people, I mean, yeah, they were guilty, but a lot of people assume that's an indicator of guilt and they forget that the the burden is on the prosecution yes. to prove you are guilty. It is not your job to prove you are innocent. Yeah. And I think that's one thing our legal systems in the UK and as well as America, we forget. seem to forget that a lot. Absolutely. And like, and also, especially with something like this, which is so charged and it's a federal crime and like i i wouldn't want to say anything more than i absolutely had to because the u.s government's out for blood like they don't yeah they're gonna even if you're like i didn't spy but like you know i whatever it's they're gonna pin something on you yeah so i don't blame her no um and when her testimony was finished, the FBI arrested her as she left the courthouse, which I think we all saw coming. <laughs> so, so a grand jury is different to a trial. Yes. Isn't it? So the grand jury, a grand jury uh, hearing is basically a it's to get an indictment. Right. So yeah. So I couldn't. I can't remember. I knew it wasn't. Like, I know there was no conviction at the end of it. I just couldn't remember if it was, like, I just couldn't remember where it fitted into the process. Yeah, yeah. So, from my understanding of all the legal procedurals I've watched in my life, <laughs> it's just basically, it's a judge, it's a, the the grand jury is larger than a regular jury. It's like 20-something people. And okay. it's um just a prosecutor asking questions to witnesses there's no sort of defense counsel allowed inside the proceedings, which is mm. yeah, fucked. Mm. Um, and yeah, and all grand jury testimonies are sealed. They're not made public until it's deemed that it's safe mm -hmm. to make them public. So they're all secret until they're not, basically. But at least while a trial is ongoing, following a grand jury testimony. You're not allowed to know what was said in there. That's interesting about defense because another legal right yes. is to legal representation, yeah. which again is used against you even if you're innocent. Yeah. Like, well, you wouldn't get a lawyer. And it's like, no, because we know what the police are up to. Yeah. So that's why you, even if you're completely innocent, you have legal representation, even if it is like court appointed or legal aid or whatever yeah. duty solicitor like you have that legal right but it's still turned against you yeah if you use it my thing is like i'm not a lawyer i don't know how the system works so i want someone in a room with me who knows what's going on 
Like, mm. just like I wouldn't try to replace the carburetor on my car without learning something about it first. You know, you want someone. Babes. Carburetors aren't in modern cars. Well, I have an old car that probably has one. No, your car. I don't not think your car. The, not my car. We have a 1970 pickup truck in oh, Vermont. Yeah. That probably has a carburetor. Oh, yeah, that probably does. But I was thinking, like, the car no, no. you have in Glasgow. I was thinking, that, not that they, one. No, no. Definitely no. not. But, you know, the, the idea holds. I wouldn't replace yeah. the timing belt. Wouldn't regas the air conditioning. You wouldn't attempt to make any mechanical changes to your car without learning something. First. That's the one. Electronic changes, I would and I have. But see, that's where we differ because <laughs> I could do. See, between us, <laughs> we could make a half decent mechanic. <laughs> the statement of, of the century. <laughs> <laughs> Take two of us to make half. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. <laughs> Need to find but... two more f- friends. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit! Um, but but yeah, yeah. It's... Like it is. It, it is interesting how the system works, and like the whole the grand jury thing is really because it's not. You're not always using a grand jury. I don't think. Like sometimes. Mm. Yeah, I I don't think we have an equivalent in this country. Yeah. I think it's all part of like the Crown Prosecution yeah, Service just, who decide whether to pursue it or something. Or not. Yeah. So um I don't know if maybe no. Grand juries must be both federal and state things. We're gonna have to do like a bonus episode about this because I'm interested now. Or I'm just gonna go read about it tonight. Yeah. Okay. What? Well, that's up to you. One of those. Uh, I will have no input into the script of that episode because <laughs> your country confuses me enough. I mean, yeah, that's fair. Anyway, so while in custody, Julius and Ethel were questioned and pressured to reveal details about the other people in the spiring, as you might expect, uh, but neither offered up any information and ultimately both were indicted on charges of espionage as were david greenglass and anatoly yakolev on august 17th uh, the rosenberg's trial began on march 6 1951 in the u.s district court for the southern district of new york basically lower manhattan say district one more district time. <laughs> um basically Manhattan, um, which is, I believe, the district that's trying to prosecute Trump as well. So if that gives you any. Yeah, that's a southern district. Isn't yeah. It? Yeah. It's like it's like the big like federal district in New York. So the prosecution's primary witness was, you could probably guess, Ethel's brother, David Greenglass. I mean, that's going to put a strain on uh, family celebrations. No shit, right? Um, So he testified that Ethel was involved in Julius's spying activities, including, as we mentioned, the typing up of Julius's notes. And his testimony ended up being the prosecution's only real evidence, quote unquote, against Ethel. Uh, But despite that, both Julius and Ethel were convicted of espionage on March 29, 1951. And on April 5th, they were sentenced to death. Uh, and another interesting little fact here is that one of the people leading the charge for their death sentences uh, was prosecutor Roy Cohn, who would go on to work uh, very closely with Senator Joseph McCarthy. Yeah. Yeah. And so the the brother is the only real witness, only real evidence. Yeah, against for the prosecution's case. Yeah. But they're like I don't think it'd be that difficult to convict just with that because of the the geopolitical exactly. situation. Especially now we're in nineteen fifty one. 
we're in the cold you're war. in it and like um and the the russians have you know successfully created bomb. this bomb and everything yeah no there was a lot going on and it's definitely like a very fraught moment in time for anybody accused of being a communist but also especially for people accused of spying and um i should say that like that was the only his testimony was the only real information against ethel the u.s government did have classified evidence against julius that like some of much of which actually was not revealed at the public trial but they used like bits of it that were ended up being enough to convict him basically yeah yeah i'm not surprised that so much of it is classified yeah well and especially because well we'll get to that <laughs> yeah uh so when the judge sentenced the rosenbergs to death he cited not just their espionage as the reason but also held them responsible for american deaths in the korean war yeah yeah so the judge's reasoning for blaming them for American deaths in Korea was that the information they passed to the Russians had led directly to the Soviets being able to build a working atomic bomb and pro uh, prompted the communist aggression in Korea. Which is like... So. A big statement. <laughs> it is. But it's also not wrong. Yeah. It's, it's not wrong in that the information they passed helped. Yeah lead to this chain of events it's a very big statement to blame two people exactly especially when like you've also literally got one of the engineers who helped like had hands-on work mm. on the components of these bombs and then like literally sending them directly to the russians but you know he you, made a deal so yeah you also have to have corrupt officials. Yeah, exactly. Not just corrupt, uh, not just people spying in the military or corrupt people in the military. You have to have like government officials on both sides. Yeah, to make this like um, to get this stuff from one side to the other. Someone gets a payoff somewhere. So it's it's not wrong. Yeah, but it's a big statement to say that these two people yeah. were responsible. Yeah, but again, technically. Yeah. They were two other people responsible. Yes, I think that's that. That's what got lost in his uh, judge's statement. Uh, once again, the U.S. government offered to spare Ethel and Julius's lives if they gave up the names of other spies and admitted guilt, but they remained silent. They made a public statement saying, "By asking us to repudiate the truth of our innocence, the government admits its own doubts concerning our guilt." We will not be coerced, even under pain of death, to bear false witness. So eloquent. Yeah. But interesting. Like, the government admits its own doubts concerning our guilt. It is, I mean, like, it's not wrong. When they're like, okay, well, it's a good take to, to have on the... It's a good way to spin yeah, it. exactly. Because it's like, no, they know you're guilty. They're just offering not to yeah. execute you. They're, they're giving you a chance here. If you tell if you tell them who else is guilty. Yeah, yeah exactly. But yeah, it, it's a good way to spin yeah. it. Especially like for the, the far left. Yeah, for sure. Uh, following their convictions, Mary Americans believed that the Rosenbergs were either innocent or had been given too harsh a sentence. An investigative series ran in the National Guardian and a group called the National Committee to Secure Justice in the Rosenberg case was formed. Just rolls off the tongue, doesn't yeah, it? I was going to say a catchy name. Yeah. <laughs> uh, many people believed that Ethel in particular was innocent. And there were also accusations of anti-Semitism and protests largely outside of America. That's interesting that they thought that she was innocent. Yeah. Because some of I mean, we haven't talked about, but like, this is the only female spy we've talked about this yeah, this actually. month. But some of the most efficient, effective, successful mm -hmm. spies have been women because people don't look at us. Yeah, people don't think we're to anything because people think of spies as like this James Bond type of 
totally. of image, this very kind of macho man, womanizing, drinking martinis, driving fast cars, blowing things up, kill the enemy. Yeah, and also, like, if you think about, especially during World War II, like... The it, resistance was women. Yeah. It was mostly women. It's, it's mostly women. Like, you think about some of the most influential code breakers in the war, women. Like Bletch, Bletchley, Bletchley Park, Park was mostly women. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and like, Alan Turing, and then they, then he was executed for being gay. And Yeah. Nope. That's a whole nother story. Not um, going in. We won't get into that. But yeah, Bletchley Park was mostly women. Yeah. And like... Look at, even in fiction... Um, Agent Carter. Oh, oh yeah, totally. Nobody, <laughs> nobody knew what the hell she was up to because she was a woman just, yeah, just doing her thing in New York in the fifties. Yeah, and like I don't know, it, it, like I think that the the World War Two period fascinating when it comes to women. Like, and I have been fascinated by this ever since seeing the film A League of Their Own when I was a child about the female baseball leagues during the war in America. And it's just spun out from there. Also, best movie ever. If you haven't seen it, everyone, go fucking watch it. It's got Gina Davis, Tom Hanks, Madonna's in it. Mm -hmm. Great. My favorite film probably ever. I don't think I've ever seen it because it sounds oh, like something I would remember. It's good. It's fucking good. But anyway, like, I think that it is so interesting because basically, yes, all the men went off to war, but the women helped keep Got the war shit going. <laughs> yeah. Like, they were building the fucking planes. <laughs> so. Yeah. My, uh, my grandmother worked in one of the, like, the factories in, I think it was in Bristol. Uh-huh. My mom said. Yeah. It's it's amazing. Well, my my grandfather was in um, Burma. What what's obviously now called Myanmar. Yeah, but was was then British Burma. Um, yeah, but yeah, women women were left behind. They did everything. Yeah, and you had like, the land army. You had the munitions factories. The code breakers. Yep. Spies. Yeah, yeah. So maybe there's 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 more uh, stuff there for us to look at too in the future. Yeah. Yeah, see, this is a problem this month. We went with the obvious. We went Cold War. I know. Shoulda, shoulda. It's mm. fine. We'll mix it up. And like, So now we've learned everything we need to know yeah, about yeah. the iterations of the KGV. Oh my god, yeah. More than we ever needed to know, potentially. We're probably on a watch list in, in the Kremlin oh or the Lubyanka. I hope not. <laughs> oh, fuck. Um, but yeah, so next spy month. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, like, so we've we've tentatively planned the next spy month to be next December, but we might have to sprinkle a few of these cases throughout the year because some yeah. of these are too good to wait. I like that we tend to be presumed innocent. Not that I'm going around committing crimes, but you know, it's that, useful that you'd admit to. Hey, <coughs> don't you go spilling my secrets. <laughs> Just because I'm your getaway driver. State secrets. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it is it is interesting. No, it really um, is. To, like, and it shows like an extent to which women are written out of history. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because American fears around communism were at a fever pitch, the Rosenbergs didn't earn widespread support from mainstream Jewish organizations, and the ACLU refused to acknowledge any civil liberty violations in their case. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but okay, you can use anti like you can say okay, anti-Semitism was a factor, whatever. Mm -hmm. Whether that's true or not, if it w wasn't, being convicted of being a spy when you are a spy, yeah, <laughs> isn't a violation of your civil liberties. Yeah, like technically correct. <laughs> yeah, no matter how you got there. Mm -hmm. um but despite their sort of frosty reception um inside the u.s they did receive widespread support in other countries and also from some very famous people the list of their supporters was long and included names like 
Jean-Paul Sartre, Albert Einstein, Bertolt Brecht, Dashiell Hammett, Frida Kahlo, Diego Rivera, Fritz Lang, and oh yeah, Pablo Picasso. And also, Pope Pius XII. It's a very eclectic list. Isn't it just? It's like, writers, authors, Einstein, the Pope, artists. <laughs> yeah. But basically all, except for, the, I don't know what the Pope's, you know, whole deal is, but like, very liberal people as well. Mm. Um, I mean, the Catholic, you know, traditionally Catholics aren't liberal, are they? No, not really. <laughs> um, so several of these people pled with President Truman and later President Eisenhower to grant the couple, especially Ethel, clemency, but both Truman and Eisenhower refused. So on June 19th, 1953, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were executed in the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison in New York. Uh, and you will find on the internet a lot of information about their executions. I didn't really want to include it, but if you're interested in learning more about how those went, it's readily available. <laughs> Basically, the gist was Julius died quick. Ethel did not. And yeah, so they were buried at Wellwood Cemetery, which is a Jewish cemetery in Pine Lawn, New York. And apparently 500 people attended their funeral and 10,000 people stood outside. Uh, they were the only two American civilians to be executed for espionage during the Cold War. Following their executions, many have debated whether Julius and Ethel Rosenberg were actually innocent and wrongly executed. I remember when you first told me about this case, because I'd never heard of yeah. it, you thought that... I thought they were innocent, they were, because yeah. I first came across it in high school, so probably like 2006 or seven, and um, I didn't actually do a school project on them, but I did a school project about researching about them for library skills class. <laughs> um and but basically like the things that we were coming up with in the library catalogs and the microfiche collections were like rosenberg's falsely executed for crimes they didn't commit or whatever and then as i started reading about it i was like oh no they did it <laughs> yeah in 1995 the U.S. counterintelligence program, the Venona Project, was made public. Venona was a U.S. effort to decrypt messages transmitted by Soviet intelligence agencies. The program ran from 1943 to 1980, so 37 years, and decrypted around 3,000 messages. That's not a good turnover rate. It's not. Like, 37 years and 3,000. <laughs> I mean, get them, get them lasses from Bletchley Park on it. Right? Like, we clearly, we needed a little cross-border uh, co uh, cooperation <laughs> there. <laughs> uh, yeah, those messages revealed both the espionage the Rosebergs were involved in and the discovery of the Cambridge Five spying in the UK. Yeah. Um, which, as you can probably guess, may come up next year yeah, sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, when Venona was made public, it became clear that Julius was definitely guilty of espionage and that even if Ethel wasn't an active participant, she could be considered an accessory because she took part in Julius's spying and helped recruit her brother David. Uh, it also revealed that Julius was important enough to have his own codename with the Soviets uh, in Antenna and Liberal. Yeah, so he had like two. Wow, so, so that's like doubly important. Yeah. Like, he was around long enough to have two different codenames. Mm. Uh, Ethel didn't have a codename, but David and Ruth Greenglass also had codenames. David was Caliber, and Ruth was known as Wasp. And what about David Greenglass? He took a plea deal after cooperating with the FBI. His he was sentenced to 15 years in prison and served nine and a half. After his release, Greenglass and Ruth lived in New York under new names. In 1996, he recanted his testimony and said he lied about the extent of Ethel's involvement to save Ruth's life. Yeah. 
in an interview with the New York Times, David Greenglass said he actually believed Ruth might have typed up Julius's notes that night in 1945, not Ethel, but he also stated that he couldn't be sure. He said, My wife is more important to me than my sister, or my mother or father, okay? And she was the mother of my children. Like... Like, it sucks, yes. but also it's fair. Yeah. If, if you're in a position where you've got to pick either your sister or your wife, you've got to pick somebody. Yeah. and Or fall on your own sword. Yeah. And he said that, like, he didn't want to orphan his children, basically, if he was going yeah. to prison. Yeah. So he orphaned his nephews instead. Yeah. You know. That's good. Uh, he said he wouldn't have done anything differently. He gave an interview with six, uh, 60 Minutes 2 on CBS in 2003 and said largely the same thing. He didn't think Ethel was very involved, but he testified against her anyway, essentially signing her death sentence. In 2015, Greenglass's grand jury testimony was released, and in it he never mentioned Ethel's involvement in spying for the Soviets. And he died in 2014. Yeah. Uh, so in 2008, go on. A little bit back in time here. Um, in 2008, many articles were published about the case, including one discussing the prosecution's strategy. Deputy Attorney General William P. Rogers, who had been a part of the prosecution team, said that they had pushed for a death sentence for Ethel in an effort to get a full confession from Julius. And he reportedly said, she called our bluff. Wow. Yeah. She sure did. Mm. Um, in 2009, a large collection of notes from the KGB archives were made public in a book called Spies, the Rise and Fall of the KGB in America. And these notes make clear that the KGB valued Julius as an agent and saw Ethel as an enthusiastic supporter of his work. Uh, the Rosenberg's sons, Michael and Robert, lived for a while with their grandparents, but were eventually adopted by social activist Abel Mirapol and his wife Anne, and they took Mirapol as their last name. They spent many years grappling with their parents' guilt, or potential guilt, in their eyes, and now say that they do believe their father was involved in spying, but his case was ultimately full of prosecu prosecutorial and judicial misconduct. They also believe Ethel was only convicted on meager evidence as leverage against Julius and that neither deserved the death sentence. Michael Mirapol's daughter, Ivy Mirapol, is a filmmaker who made a 2004 documentary about her grandparents called Heir to an Execution. Uh, and in 2021, Michael and Robert restarted a, a prior campaign to the White House to pardon Ethel Rosenberg. Uh, apparently they started it when Obama was in office and then kind of backed off for a bit there. No, no wonder. Was it, was it four years that they yeah, backed off? Yeah, like, Was that the, the exact time period? Precisely that time period. But now that Biden's in office, they're like, he might be more receptive to this <laughs> campaign. Uh, Potentially. Yeah. And uh, so that is the story of the atomic spiring that helped Russia build a nuclear bomb and led to the executions of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Wow. Yeah. It's... It's a story. It is. It really um, is. It, I mean, like... And one that I, I, I'd never, never heard of it, but obviously it's got no UK involvement, really, yeah. so why would I? Um, My thing about this is, like, I think there have been some films that touch on it. And I know that um, there's like a famous novel that's basically based on the story. But God, is it a, it would be a good film. Yeah. Or it, 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 what I find really interesting about a lot of these Cold War cases or just sort of espionage in general. Yeah. They are stranger than fiction. You yeah. couldn't make... Like, if you wrote them as, like, a novel or a film, people would be like, no, it's far too... It's way too far-fetched. Yeah. Um, but some of them are, like, stranger than fiction. Yeah. Um, what I didn't put in the script, which is kind of interesting, is that 
the amount to which the Rosenberg spy ring actually helped Russia develop a nuclear bomb is hotly debated. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, Including by, like, heads of Russian state. So, like, in uh, Nikita Khrushchev's autobiography, I think, he was like, oh, yeah, they helped us a whole bunch. All that information they gave us helped us a whole bunch, and we we managed to develop the bomb faster. And then a bunch of people after Khrushchev died were like, Khrushchev was an idiot. They didn't help at all. We had it under control, so... (laughs) Also, Khrushchev wasn't premier until um, 53 anyway. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'm not sure what his, his role in government was before he he replaced Stalin, like, uh, while Stalin was alive, but yeah. he was not Stalin's biggest fan. No. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see, and like, and especially before the Venona project was declassified, people were like, yeah, like, he definitely didn't actually give anyone any serious information. And then, obviously, he did. But again, it's that, like, sort of confusion over, like, did they actually speed up Russian development? Or did it, was it just also occurring? And I think that also speaks to, like, this notion of, like, Western superiority. Yeah. Because, and I'm speaking in very vague terms because I don't know either way. But if the west had the cap- had the technology the intelligence the capability everything to build these bombs other countries had them as well exactly you know there was a time when knowledge was freely shared yeah less so now <laughs> but you know and a lot of um you know there's plenty of scientists in america in the dying days of the Second World War and into the Cold War were Nazi scientists. Yeah. They were sort of pardoned because they could be put to use yeah, for the West. Yeah. So So that knowledge was floating around in Europe. Yeah. Throughout that time period. So it is perfectly feasible. And it's like oh was it less I think it was when we did the Golanevsky episode, we said the sort of Western depictions of Eastern Europe mm-hmm. are either Bavarian castles <laughs> or the like, like horrific Soviet deprivation. Oh yeah, there's no in between. Even today, yeah, absolutely. Let's say Khrushchev might have said, "Oh yeah, they helped so much." Yeah. Other people are then going to say, "Oh no," but. Like, we also have to remember political vents on this as well. Yeah, and also just, like, once that knowledge, like, once someone creates a bomb, that information is out there. Like, Mm. uh, of course other countries are going to develop nuclear bombs. Like, it just makes sense. And they were developing them all along, probably, and... One, it's just like the space race. Like one just got there faster. Yeah, it's like like the space race. There was you had uh, America and the USSR both trying to develop space. You know, spacecrafts are very. You know, obviously there was a race to the moon. The first, you know, uh, Yuri Gagarin was the first man in space. The the Soviets put the first dog in space as well. Yeah, Laika, like. Laker, like, yeah. So they had the technology to do all that. Yeah. So it's perfectly feasible, but they also had the technology to build atomic weapons. These atomic weapons could have looked completely different to America's. Yeah. Had they not had, you know, so it just depends. All of these things are all happening at the same time. And. Hmm. They're all intertwined, but also they're all separate. So, yeah, the stuff that um, the Soviets got from America could have helped, or it could have helped a little bit, or could have helped a lot, or could have just been a thing that they had. But And let's not forget, it went the other way oh, as well. Yeah. The West 
especially the British. Yeah. The British had spies all over e- <laughs> Eastern Europe. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. So, you know, there's information going both ways. And because of different, like, political stances, mm-hmm. we'll never get a real true idea. Yeah. Of how much they helped or what stage the Soviets were at when the Rosenbergs were recruited. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just think it's a really interesting case. And what I also like about this one is that as time has passed, like we've gotten more information about it. And like as tricky as this sort of thing is when you're like, executing american citizens on american soil ultimately probably at least in half of this case the right conclusion was reached yeah i mean we can argue every which way to sunday about whether they should have been executed and we can argue about the death penalty but from the evidence in the u.s from the like you know, Khrushchev himself yeah. and various other sort of uh, high-profile Soviet officials, you know, they had a degree of involvement. I don't think it's the guilt that's now in question. Yeah. I think it's, it's the process. It's the degree, yeah, well, yeah, and the degree to which they were involved. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think ultimately, for, for a long time, it seems like they were both of their guilt were in question and now really the focus is just ethel mm-hmm. which is fair and like i was watching a little thing with michael mirapol their son their old, eldest son he was like you know i don't know how much my mother was involved but she was a 1940s housewife like she supported mm-hmm. her husband yeah and that was what she did and so and like she was very active in the communist cause as a young woman as well mm-hmm. but he's like yeah like even if she wasn't out there gathering information yeah she supported julius because they were married and that's what you did so yeah there's also an element of that to it as well that's mm-hmm. that um yeah if you like the show as always rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app um uh if you want some some square mile merch you should head to squaremilemurder.store uh to get get your get your little paws on some cool square mile stuff um and right now for another two days uh, if you're listening to this when it comes out, uh, you can get 20% off of everything in the merch store by using code SPYMIS20, S-P-Y-M-A-S-2-0. Uh, so check that out if you want to get any merch. Um, we're going to revamp the whole store in the new year, so now's the time. And if you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show... And our various harebrained schemes that, like, one of them has to come to fruition. One of these days. Uh, you can you can join our Patreon page. Matthias start at just £1 per month. Every patron gets regular episodes one day early, a shout-out on the show, priority case requests, and a lifetime discount on merch. And that's just for £1 a month. As the tiers go up, you get even more, including bonus episodes and exclusive Money Can't Buy stationary merch. Uh, so check all that out at patreon.com slash square mile of murder links are in all the usual usual places uh merry christmas if you're celebrating christmas happy new year um Uh, yeah thanks for listening we have a christmas ramble on christmas day yes if you're uh not celebrating christmas or you're just sick of your family um it's not really true crime related it is it's just about it's christmas. our christmas party it's our christmas party is yeah. basically what it is yeah we were drunk we should probably say it's not just a christmas yeah. ramble <laughs> it's a drunk christmas ramble 
<laughs> yeah, basically, we had uh, we had our Christmas party and we recorded yeah, it. That. Um, so <laughs> and Taylor gets the the joy of editing it, yeah, which I haven't done yet. So we're gonna see how fucking crazy it is. <laughs> Because the raw audio was like two and a half hours. It was quite long. Also, my hard drive filled up halfway through. So I don't know what all is there and what all isn't. Oh, yeah. I forgot about yeah, that. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. You have that on Christmas Day. And then we are having Twixmas off. Yeah. Um, and then we'll be back in January. Yeah. We will be back in 2022. No prophecies. No. Just. I mean, we'll be back. That's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> at, it. At some point in 2022, we'll we'll be back. Yeah, and and hopefully you'll be there too. And you know, just yeah. thank you all for for hanging out with us this this year. And um, yeah, we'll see you then. Yeah, see you then. Bye. Bye.